Good morning, Dr. Dan Guerra here. Today is the 27th of December, 2021. And I promised you one more lecture on AMP kinase right before Christmas. And I wasn't able to record it, although I have written it. So today I'm going to record it. Um, I'm going to be talking about the adenosine monophosphate dependent protein kinase or AMP kinase and some of its interesting features in the immune system. That was the promise lecture. And that is what you will hear right now. Okay. Now, a paper was published in Nature Cell Biology in 2019. I'm going to go through it pretty quickly here because we've discussed some of this in the past and some of it we haven't, but I really want to get uh, on with it. Now, a while back, seems like ages ago, <laughs> we were talking about aging. And this is relevant to it because this brings back our amkinase story. Okay. Okay. So you remember cellular senescence. And remember me telling you that that was a stable, I would say metastable arrest of growth. And of course, it was implicated perhaps in disease. And also, of course, because of the growth effect and also in the um, temporally associated aging process. I told you that senescing cells have typically an upregulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines and that that particular phenotype had been first described as SASP. Remember, senescence-associated secretary phenotype. I also told you about NAD metabolism seemed to influence this process but in ways that were not well described. So the paper we're talking about looked at that nicotinamide phosphoribosyl transferase activity, which of course is a rate limiting step in the salvage pathway for NAD biosynthesis. But it seems also that because NAD is associated with inflammation, that that enzyme could be directly linked to that phenotype and don't worry, we're going to get into AMP kinase sooner than you think. So the HMGAs, okay, and the NAMPT and NAD signaling process all together now um, promote a pro-inflammatory SASP, and it does so by enhan enhancing glycolysis and indeed also respiration, that is electron transport chain. So it does this because this whole pro-inflammatory process works through NAD salvage pathway, and that is linked to a suppression of AMP kinase, which suppresses P53-mediated inhibition of P38-MAP kinase, thus enhancing the transcription factor activity of NF-kappa B. And what the resulting understanding is, is the following. NAD metabolism essentially governs that pro-inflammatory SASP response, and it does so by inhibiting AMP kinase, okay? So we know all that. We know that cellular senescence is stable and therefore considered typically anti-proliferative. 
Therefore, anything that might promote senescence in particular tissues, particularly in nascent tumors, could be chemotherapeutic, right? And so that whole process I was talking about was looking at what proteins are, could be used as biomarkers and what other kind of processes associated with that whole system. And hence, we got into that HMGA protein. I told you that that HMGA protein was part of that AMP kinase suppression axis. Now, go way back and remember that this HMGA protein has something to do with uh, its residence near chromatin, particularly in senescent fibroblasts. And all of that seemed to be associated with uh, heterochromatin. Remember, heterochromatin. And, there, and when you think about heterochromatin, there's going to be nodes of heterochromatin in the chromosomes, and that would be called the heterochromatic fo focus, and then collected heterochromatic foci. So those are referred to as SAHFs, don't you know? Now, you know, those are going to be linked to amkinase because amkinase is linked to sirtuin activity. So as it turns out, HMGA proteins, which were part of that whole NAMPT, NAD, remember the NAMPT is the rate-limiting enzyme for salvage pathway NAD synthesis, right? So those HMGA proteins cooperate with that really important cell cycle protein known as P16-INC4A, which is known as it to be a tumor suppressor. And it does all of that. It's functioning by controlling this pathway through proliferation arrest. And it does it by stabilizing senescence. So the anti-proliferative activities are actually caused by the expression of certain cell cycle dependent kinases like CDK4, which when they're mutated are oncogenes. And the AMP kinase is functioning at the level of suppressing those particular transcripts, which would otherwise promote anabolic pathways on first axis and secondarily promote glycolysis over fatty acid oxidation. Remember, glycolysis is a more rapid way to control cell division because you can use the pyruvate, which is the final product of, of uh, glycolysis, it's either that or lactate, right? And that couple there is associated with NAD and NADH ratios, remember the lactate dehydrogenase pathway versus pyruvate dehydrogenase. Yep. Um, and so then you can get rapid fire through the electron transport chain uh, after the synthesis of NADH and FADH2 from the TCA cycle. So glycolysis is typically preferred for proliferative cells. AMP kinase works against all that, remember? It's anti-mTOR, and it's also uh, anti-anabolism because of that, through mTOR and through AKT and various other kinase cascades, right? Remember, mTOR itself is a cascade of kinase activity, promoting... Uh, cell division via the promotion of protein synthesis, rich and grand, right? So AMP kind of tanks all that, but it does so by reverting to a different fuel, 
And that, that fuel that's used is fatty acid. So using fatty acid provides a constant, considerably more throughput of uh, ATP per unit of carbon oxidized, but doing so at a rate much slower than glycolysis. So when you switch from fatty acid catabolism to carbohydrate catabolism for your bioenergetics, you can often switch a cell lineage from uh, stationary to proliferative. And that's why oncogenic research is interested in AMP kinase, right? So remember that that NAMT enzyme, NAMPT enzyme, also was linked to nucleotide biosynthesis. And of course, NAD is a nucleotide itself. But that particular enzyme, NAMPT, right, which is nicotinamide uh, transferase reaction, phosphoribosyl transferase reaction, will take nicotinamide and make nicotinamide um, mononucleotide, okay? Because you're adding that ribose, phosphoribose sugar, right? So now it's a nucleotide. And that's the, that's the rate limiting step in the salvage synthesis. Because the next enzyme then is nicotinamide mononucleotide adenotransferase. And that, rather than using PRPP, takes ATP. And that's where you pick up the second nucleotide, right? The adenosine. Now you have nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide is a product of those two reactions with NAMPT being the rate limiting. And remember, we just talked all about how that's organized around uh, inhibiting the AMP kinase. Now, why is it that verifying literature, scientific literature, of course, requires a certain immunoepigenetic retailoring of individual biomedical events. So why is it that when you look at the scientific literature, you have to verify it in such a way that you cover the epigenetic alterations? So I'm asking that rhetorically, obviously, I'm not in a studio with a bunch of people listening or in a lecture hall, but I'm asking it also just so you understand where my mind goes with this. It's simply because immunoepigenetic phenomena are the communication network in the cell and in the whole system. So that would be the human body. And you don't get any plastic or elastic transformations of gene expression that totally um, manage and control, or in the other cycle, simply just vitiate a particular cellular fate. Right, So you have to go back and think about the immunology and the epigenetic phenomena that the immune system can help promote, and then the epigenetic modifications turning an epigenome of a given, say, T-cell lineage into always being associated with pro- or anti-inflammation. That there would be a regulation versus, say, T-helper cells versus T regulatory cells or natural killer cells versus other CD8 positive lineages, right? And the whole um, B B cell to plasma cell transformation as well and the production of immunoglobulins, which of course would also be potent in regulating an immune response, right? Either an episodic flare 
or chronic immune response, such as an autoimmune disease. So think about that. And a paper was published in prostaglandins, leukotrains, essential fatty acids. And there's a link to that. And the link is between dietary omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin B12, folic acid, and all of this involves bioenergetics. And yeah, membrane-mediated DNA methylation. Now, this was a paper that was talking about pregnant maternal intake and or metabolism of particular omega-3 fatty acids and then fetal lipid metabolism in an axial association with that. And what was determined was the maternal omega-3 fatty acids with B12 had an effect on phosphatidylethanolamine and methyl transferase activity. Also on peroxisome proliferator activated receptor and in the adiponectin signaling pathway, including epigenetic processes in, as often described, one of the canonical ones, excuse me, chromatin methylation, right? Cytosine or adenosine, more rarely, methylation, covalent modification with a methyl group. Now, AMP kinase phosphorylation of a DNA methyltransferase 1, there's AMP kinase, decreases the methylation of several mitochondrial biogenesis transcription factors. That was in a paper that was published in the National Journal of Biological Sciences uh, some six, almost seven years ago now. Now, of course, you remember that the DNA methyltransferase will use Adomet, that's adenosylmethionine, as the methylation agent. And when AMP kinase phosphorylation of that DNMT1 enzyme occurs, you divert the Adomet to phosphatidylcholine biosynthesis from phosphatidylethanolamine. And I just told you that that enzyme was the one we're looking at. That's phosphatidylethanolamine and methyltransferase, right? Of course it is. So now you're linking together lipid membrane, lipid synthesis, bioenergetics, and as well as the control at the level of epigenetic profile changes, ultimately leading then to an immune response because the genes that get expressed or not expressed, that is the ones that are vitiated, are controlled by, via methylation pattern, right? ultimately. So competition for adenosylmethionine between either membrane retailering or DNA histone methylation is an epigenomic effect. And when it's occurring in immune cells, obviously you're going to alter the ratios of, for example, pro-inflammatory cytokines versus centralized senescent control or even energy. And here I'm thinking about T lymphocytes. So you see how AMP kinase came directly in play with the immune system. Now, here's a paper that was published in 2017. This was in Science Signal. It's one of my favorite journals, actually. And it's a relatively recent journal. This one tells us that AMP kinase promotes mitochondrial biogenesis and function. And it does so by phosphorylating, again, the epigenetic factor DNMT1. Remember, we just mentioned that one. 
from a 2015 paper. But two other ones, two other proteins get methylated by AMP kinase. One is an RBBP7. Think of that as a cell cycle controller. And of course, the HAT1, that's histone acetyl transfer as one. So the AMP kinase, of course, as we've been saying now for the last four lectures, now we're in the fifth, is a master regulator of cellular bioenergetics and therefore homeostasis. And it's that it functions that way because it is direct phosphorylating metabolic agent, right? And what is a phosphorylate? Enzymes, which alter their activity. But also M kinase will phosphorylate nutrient transporters. And in fact, because of that, will control transcription factor mediated gene expression. And it does so indeed even for organeller biogenesis. In this case, we're talking about mitochondrial biogenesis. And then, then the result of squalor with that will be function. So AMP kinase consensus phosphorylation sequences in three proteins are all involved in nucleosomal remodeling. That's the DNA methyltransferase one. Then the second one, again, with a long history in cell cycle control, retinoblastoma binding protein. This happens to be retinoma, retinoblastoma binding protein number seven. And then, of course, the histone acetyltransferase I just mentioned at one. Now, DNMT1 mediates DNA methylation. And of course, most frequently, that limits transcription. And it can limit the transcription of transcription factors and therefore controls and, by, by the way, delimits or vitiates the ability for those transcription factors to promote uh, gene expression because of methylation, right? Now, all of that DNAMT activity is actually inhibited by the retinoblastoma binding protein 7, which is also a substrate for amkinase, you see. Isn't that interesting? And next, acetylation of histones by HAT1, of course, creates a more relaxed chromatin DNA, and that would tend to favor transcription, right, by allowing RNA polymerase and all the other transcription factors to enter into the um, retailored chromatin ready for uh, nation transcription. So AMP kinase, AMP kinase mediated phosphorylation directly results in the activation of the acetyltransferase and the inhibition of DNMT1. And for DNMT1 to be inhibited, it has to be a direct effect via phosphorylation and also by the fact that you phosphorylated the retinoblastoma binding protein, turning it into the RBBP7, the P being phosphorylated protein. So indeed, in this study, in human umbilici, pharmacological AMP kinase activation, or in an animal model, or also in um, human studies, a pulsatile shear stress will trigger nucleosomal remodeling and decreased, of course, cytosine methylation because of how AMP kinase is functioning at those three protein levels. All that leads to an increased expression of nuclear genes encoding factors involved in mitochondrial biogenesis and function, such as that peroxyproliferator activator receptor gamma, coactivator 1-alpha or, or um, 
happily known as PGC-1 alpha, but also the protein called transcription factor A, which is a TFAM, and in fact, the uncoupling proteins, UCPs two and three, which of course are going to allow for the dissipation of the electron transport chain because of uncoupling the inner mitochondrial membrane gradient, right, the electrochemical gradient. Now, similar effects were seen in other tissues in the animal models. Um, that same effect I just told you about in terms of epigenomic retailering. And so it looks like AMP kinase plays a major role in nucleosomal retailering. That's the bottom line there. So there's another nail into this coffin we're building around AMP kinase controlling the neuroimmunoepigenome. Another paper published now, Frontiers in Immunology. I can already see it's going to be two lectures, sorry. Dendritic cells, of course, are central to the generation of the innate and then the communication to the adaptive immune system. Think T cells, right? Dendritic cells interact with T cells. And of course, it's known that that immunological interaction also is controlled by metabolic signaling. Always the case. Now, if you think about murine bone marrow derived dendritic cells, which is where they come from, bone marrow, we're going to call those BMDC. Murine means it's a mouse model. They've been well described, and it seems that they undergo a uh, turnover to the Varberg glycolytic pathway upon activation. And that, of course, is steric, uh, can be characterized by steric alterations of various um, enzymatic activities associated with allosteric modifications, right? That's why it happens. And ultimately, the product of that steric uh, alteration at the allosteric level is an upregulation of aerobic glycolysis, and that's the Varberg metabolism. And that's all done, again, now going at the higher level of order via the activation of these master growth metabolic regulators. And one of them, the major one, <laughs> mammalian target of rapamycin mTOR. And of course, that's accompanied by a significant downregulation of oxidative phosphorylation, that is electron transport chain activity. All this is happening again, remember the dendritic cells upon their activation so that they can tune up T cell, effector cell, for example, pro-inflammatory response. You understand, that's why this paper was published in Frontiers in Immunology in 2019, because that's what it's about, immunology. Now, conversely, that whole system and that metabolic program is suppressed in the immature murine bone-derived dendritic cells by higher increase in activity in cellular energy sensor AMP kinase. Now, that enzyme, of course, will block mTOR activation, right? So the downregulation of oxidative phosphorylation in those dendritic cells as they are switching to the Varberg metabolism, typically results from a suppression of mitochondrial activity by, of course, the INOS pathway. That's the inducible nitric oxide synthase. 
However, human dendritic cells, as opposed to murine, and indeed also macrophages, typically don't have high expression of INOS. So this is a difficult thing then to put together the pathway pieces, right? This is an analytical associated study. <clears throat> because how then do you get the Varberg metabolism, which of course occurs in the mouse model? So what it was found that while mature human dendritic cells are definitely more glycolytic than the immature, they don't completely shut down oxidative phosphorylation. And in fact, they use glycolysis with the ETC and oxphos. And so that's what's basically going on in human dendritic cells. So now you see once again, I've been emphasizing this all my life as a professor of biochemistry. You can look at the animal models, particularly the mammalian, the small rodent models, the, the mouse models, because we make knockouts in them and knock-ins in them, and we have all kinds of reporter gene systems, and we can use recombinase-mediated alteration of gene expression, turning genes on in specific tissues, and then modifying them or doping them with various pharmacological means, and then looking at how drugs interact with the expression of proteins or activation of enzymes involved in all the metabolic pathways. We get a tremendous amount of merit from doing those studies because that then allows us to do it all in the animal model where we have models for various diseases, right? So this is a biomedical approach. And then ultimately maybe come up with new uh, pharmaceuticals that we can then try out later subsequently in the human population to alleviate some illnesses, right? Now, the big leap from the rodent model to the human studies is just now once again being uh, displayed here at Authentic Biochemistry because of one small thing. You don't have an increased inducible nitric oxide synthase in human dendritic cells when you do in those bone-derived, immature dendritic cells. Remember, the thing happens quicker in the mouse that you get from that murine model. So that means you have to have another way of controlling, right, to switch to glycolysis. You see where I'm leading this, right? Now, the phosphorylation of AMP kinase, remember that threonine residue, 172, that is where all of this original conception was coming from, for coming up with a hypothetical deduction to understand the control over glycolysis and dendritic cells. And why we're interested is because the bioenergetics of the dendritic cells is then going to mediate their effect on T cells and therefore their potential for hyperinflammatory responses. All in the human, right? Okay, so we know that the phosphorylation of AMP kinase, which, is, which triggers AMP kinase activation, that and, of course, binding to AMP. Remember those three moles of AMP binding to their specific sites on the polypeptide. All these are allosteric modifications, correct? Phosphorylation and, and adenosine monophosphate binding to specific sites on the protein. When you phosphorylate AMP kinase and you, and you add AMP to the, uh, to the mixture, you actually get an analgesic effect on neuropathic pain. Yeah. And we know pain is associated with what? Well, one thing, eicosanoid production. And then what downstream sequelae from that? 
pro-inflammatory cytokine biosynthesis is often not far behind in neuropathic pain. So the activation of AMP kinase was studied and also it was obvious because the amkinase works at the transcriptional level, ultimately, in one arm of its pathway to changing the uh, cell fate and therefore the expression of pro anti-inflammation when you're talking about the immune system. <clears throat> Activation of amkinase in the downstream protein called P65NF-kappa-B, hello, pro-inflammatory transcription factor. They're all critically involved in controlling neuroinflammation and indeed in that autoimmune disease known as inflammatory arthritis. So now this is another element I'm going to bring up and then I'm going to have to stop. It looks like because it's getting late. Enhanced cannabinoid type 2 receptor activation actually inhibits something called the nod-like receptor proteins 3. Those are the NLRPs, which are all part of the inflammasome. Okay, so that's obviously pro-inflammatory cytokine production. And it does sort of reduce the production of the particularly potent pro-inflammatory cytokine known as interleukin-1-beta, uh, particularly the P17, which is the mature fragment of IL-1B. And that contributes, I'm going to stop here, with a uh, Freud's adjuvant-induced pain hypersensitivity when a person's getting an injection. Okay, that's complete Freud's adjuvant, which induces pain hypersensitivity. And that's what we all, this is the model that's going to be used. So I'm going to stop there because I've got now part two. I set the stage, ramp kinase, hopefully, and the immune response. I've given you multiple examples of it. And now I'm getting deep into a paper that's going to use as a model this uh, CFA response, right, the complete Freud's adjuvant. And that's going to be also today. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry, 27th of December, saying bye for now.